the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Lamanda Joy, author of Start a Community Food Garden, and it's called The Essential Handbook. And by golly, Lamanda, I was looking at this, I've been reading through it, and I wish I had this book back when I got involved in community gardening. It is wonderful. Well, thank you. Thanks. That's, that's a great response. You've got everything into there in this book. But before we get started on that, tell me how you got into gardening. Did you come from a gardening family? Well, yes, I uh, grew up in rural Oregon, and that's just what we did. You know, Dad grew a big veggie garden, and Mother, you know, canned and cooked and baked and did all of those things. So I learned all of those skills from them, and I'm really thankful that I was able to do that. Yeah, it's it's helpful not to have to relearn everything. How did you get into community gardening, though? And how did you get from Oregon to Illinois? Well, I actually broke up with a boyfriend, and I was uh, planning to move back to Portland. Uh, I was living in Eugene at the time, and I wanted to work at Powell's Books. My brother lived in Illinois, and I told him what I was up to, and he said, well, maybe you could do a little more than just, you know, go work at a bookstore. Why don't you come stay with me for a little while? So I uh, went to visit my brother with two suitcases and a cardboard box 20 years ago, and I just never ended up coming back. (laughs) And how did you get into community gardening? Well, I had moved to a new neighborhood. We had lived in a com- condo for a number of years, and we weren't able to garden, and that, that made me crazy because I, you know, have always been a gardener. So we, uh, one February, went looking for a yard with a house attached to it, and we <laughs> found that in a new neighborhood, and um, we put in my home garden that I blog about, the yard, and so it was a giant, beautiful, organic uh you know, uh, food garden with fruit trees and all that. And so I joked that I developed uh, a, a medical condition called lot lust after, you know, <laughs> getting this big lot and turning it into a garden. And so I was driving around um, our neighborhood and I kept eyeballing this empty lot uh, down the street from my house, eyeballing it, eyeballing it, eyeballing it. And then one day I um, was at our local butcher shop and noticed a photo on the wall of a World War II victory garden. And then a few days later, it dawned on me that that empty lot was um, one of the lots in the photo. So I was like, wow, I think this is, I think this, this is necessary. I have a lot less. It was a garden. People want to learn how to garden. And I have greatest generation parents, too. So my dad was in the Occupied Forces, and my mom was a Rosie the Riveter. So I'd always grown up hearing about, you know, World War II, and if you don't like something, change it, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and all that. So that's that's how uh, that's how I got started. One of the thing, things in your book that you mentioned and that I didn't know was that um, most World War II victory gardeners in Chicago didn't know how to garden before they got started growing their own food. You know, that's really the remarkable story about the victory garden movement is I think Today, you know, 70-plus years later, we think that back then everybody came from farms and knew what they were doing, but it absolutely wasn't true in Chicago. Ninety percent of Chicagoans had never gardened before. So in addition to, you know, helping them get land ready, you know, the Park District plowed property for people and helped with that thing, they had to teach people. There was a full-blown educational 
effort to teach a city of people how to become gardeners. And that part is really what inspired me because, you know, that education piece is so important and gardens can come and go, but that education will last a lifetime. Tell us about the Peterson Garden Project. That's the one that you founded on this lot that you saw that was in the picture in your hardware store, in your butcher shop, right? Yes, that was your correct. first one. Well, that, yes, Peterson Garden Project is now a comprehensive educational program. Six years later, but that first year, it was you know I had been inspired by this World War II Victory Garden story, and so I thought, well, let's create a place where we can teach people how to grow their own food. And I thought if 20 people wanted to do it, it would be fun, and it ended up being the largest uh, food garden in the entire city. So that was interesting. And, uh, you know, it's Peterson Garden because it was on Peterson and Campbell, but that project piece, that, that's the real key to the name is because we really wanted to see if we could revive that Victory Garden effort and get people together on land short-term uh, to teach them how to grow their own food. And how many people did you have that first year? You said you were aiming for 20. What did you end up with? Yeah, we ended up with about 400 people. Whoa! <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. What did yeah, you do with them all? Popular. What did you well, do we with taught them all? all? We taught them all. It was, it was a great, amazing effort. It was, uh, it was, you know, shocking because having grown up knowing how to grow my own food, it's like a second language in a lot of ways. I was shocked at what people didn't know. And how scared they were of it. So it was it was really fun and interesting. We were all in it together, and it was really a special thing. Still is. That that sounds like a whole lot of fun. And we, I think a lot of us, myself included, think that this is one of the few generations that's grown up without a gardening background. This current generation growing up, because. You know, back, of course, in the 60s and 70s, people were very heavily into growing their own food. And back when I was growing up in the 50s, you know, gardening, just as it was in your family, it was just um, a way of life. But you're saying that all these city people didn't know how to garden, and this was just, what, five years ago? Yeah, we're going into our sixth, sixth season now. Yeah, it was five years ago. Wow. Okay. Well, that's right. that's pretty cool. So now tell us, tell us about the Peterson Garden Project. Do you you have a, something that you call plot to plate? What is that? Well, we learned early on that if you're teaching people how to grow your own food, we need to teach people how to cook their own food too. So uh, this year we were able to introduce a, a cooking school to close that loop because what we would find is we have all these people really excited growing all this food and then they didn't know what to do with it. So, you know, if you're a recipe cook, you go to the store, you buy your 12 ingredients, make your meal, great. But if you're a garden cook, you know, you go out there and you're like, wow, I got a lot of cucumbers or I got a lot of tomatoes. And it takes a little bit different skill set. And so we learned, you know, we did had chefs and we had foodies and people like that, but there were so many other people that just work or flummoxed by the output of their gardens. And we realized that people didn't have that essential skill, that essential skill of basic cooking. So that's what we mean by plot to plate. You know, it's not just enough to teach people to grow it. You need to teach them what to do with it. And that includes, you know, cooking it, how to harvest, of course, cooking it and preserving as well. I was going to ask whether you also taught them how to preserve because that's a whole another skill set in itself, learning how to can and freeze. Freezing is fairly easy once you get the idea that you're, it's a good idea to blanch it um, before you put it in the freezer. 
But canning, do you have um, master canners or something available to you from the extension service? You know, our extension doesn't do master preservers anymore, which is unfortunate. But um, we have a lot of experienced canners, so we uh, we teach that. We've got we got a lot of resources, and people are crazy to learn canning. It's probably the most popular thing we teach. Really? I would have thought that that would be kind of far down on the list. It was for me because, you know, I had a big garden and I wanted to eat basically from the garden. And, and as you probably know, when you're a new homeowner, you don't have a whole lot of money to spend on other things. So growing your own food is really helpful. So tell me about the average person that comes to this comes to your classes. Are they all gardeners or do they come just for the cooking classes or or the preserving classes or tell me about them? Well, we have we have all sorts of people that participate in our programs. It runs the gamut, income level, education level, ethnicities. We've got we've got it all. It's a real microcosm of Chicago in general. And we noticed, we just opened the cooking program in October. You know, we've really noticed that that's changed the program in a lot of ways because a lot more people want to learn how to cook than want to learn how to garden. So it's really expanded our outreach. And in a fun way, you know, you think about people learning how to grow their own food and then wanting to cook, but we've found now that we've started these cooking programs that many people are like, well, now that I have the opportunity to learn how to cook, I need to learn how to garden too. So it's really been it's really been interesting how people have reacted to that. But getting back to your question, there's there's all sorts of people and all sorts of motivations, and it's really it's really fun to have people in the kitchen. Do you have um, do you have other garden areas where you said you had like 400 people this that first year? Where do you find space for that many gardens, or do or don't you? Well, we have eight gardens now, and they're all really big, and um, we use unused urban land. So, for example, you know, on the north side of Chicago, land's too expensive to buy. So our first garden, the property uh, would have cost $900,000, so nobody could afford that. So, yeah, so we we call our gardens pop-up victory gardens because we use them short term. So our original garden, we knew that it was only going to be there for two years. So we decided, well, we're really just going to focus on teaching people. And so when the gardens move, we find another piece of property that's, you know, either owned by an institution or a private individual or what have you. We make an agreement to be on that property for a minimum of two years and then we'll move the gardens there. So they're all raised beds. We get U-Hauls. We move the infrastructure. We bring in new soil. And then we, we build the gardens that way. So we have eight now, and we have uh, almost 4,000 people gardening with us. We have 1,000 volunteers. We have 1,000 volunteers put in 7,000 hours last year. That's the equivalent of three and a half full-time people. It's pretty pretty incredible. Now, most of your volunteers, are they master gardeners, or are they from just volunteers from the neighborhood? What, What do you have? Well, we do participate with master gardeners. I'm a master gardener, and several of our uh, leadership team people are also master gardeners. But, you know, we do all sorts of work. It's not just garden education. It's building gardens. It's garden cleanup. It's, you know, cooking classes. It's all sorts of stuff. So the master gardeners have been really instrumental. We actually won a state teamwork award in 2012 for one of our programs in the garden. So we love our master gardeners. But um, it's, it's the public in general. Everybody. 
I was impressed by one line in your book about how adults will listen to children when the children will tell them how to do something. That that tickled me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I can just picture the yes, five-year-old bossing around <laughs> somebody that's that's older yeah, that, than they are. That particular reference is related to, we teach our kids how to um, water properly and mm-hmm. how to pay attention to, you know, if the water's on, you know, if things are tidy. And they just like, they're like little generals, you know. They'll be out there telling the grown-ups what to do. It is hysterical, and it, it really works. I like that you're getting the kids involved early and giving them ownership of something that they can do themselves. I think that's a good way to get yeah, kids or well, anybody hooked. Yeah, it's good to find out what people uh, like to do and give them some authority around that. It works out well. We're going to have to take a little break in just a a moment, but when we come back, I'd like to go through some of the things in your book that may help people decide whether they want to do a a community garden and how they might want to get involved. We'll be right back after this. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's Food Link was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to fork. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Lamant DeJoy, author of Start a Community Food Garden, The Essential Handbook. And, Lamanda, you've been involved with the community garden. Did the book come out of that, or did you research the book before you jumped into community gardening, or, or how did you do that? Well, I joke that I wish I had this book when I started Peterson Garden Project, and that's really where it came from. As I got more and more involved in community gardening and speaking about it and being on the board of the American Community Gardening Association, I noticed that people were always asking the same questions. And so I thought it probably would be good to um, to make this movement really stick and grow, to have something where people could learn from other people's mistakes, <laughs> namely mine. So that's where, uh, that's where the book came from. I, one of the things I like about the book is that you don't. Um, it, you you kind of intrigued me by saying you, you tell people not to necessarily jump in and and do a garden, but to see where they might plug into what's already going on in the community. Did you, in retrospect, think that you should have done that, or was the opportunity just too good to pass up, or how did you get to that thought? 
Yes. You know, it's a funny thing. It's I started Community Food Garden, the essential handbook, and then I tell people not to start a garden. But I think <laughs> that if people have the opportunity to be part of another garden, they should absolutely do that because you can learn so much. And I also think that, you know, people are really excited to start a garden, start a garden, but they don't realize the people part of it and the education part of it. And so if they can be part of another organization that's learned the ropes or maybe has some you know, lessons or best practices to share with them, that's that's the best education people can get. I think you're right. And it, and they're able to help out and learn and not have the major responsibility for starting it and coordinating it right away, too. And that can be the really tough part. Um, we've, when you talk about your book, you mentioned three different kinds of gardens that you might find in the city. Talk, let's talk a little bit about them. You've got the urban farm. And the community food gardens, of course, and that's the kind of the most biggest stress point in your book, um, workplace gardens and school gardens. Have you been involved in all of those, or um, have you ob- observed them? Tell, tell us about those. Well, the reason I break that down in the book is because there's a lot of confusion about what a community garden is, what an urban farm is. You know, et cetera. So I just wanted to outline sort of the differences and similarities between all of them. We, I've been involved in workplace gardens. Two of our gardens are workplace gardens. We have a small school garden uh, at uh, one of our local high schools that we help with. And, of course, we have our food gardens. Now, the big difference between those three things and an urban farm is that, for the most part, community gardens don't sell the produce. And that's the biggest question and confusion I think people have. I say, hey, we work on a community garden program, and they say, can I come and buy the produce? Well, no, it's not a farm. It's a community garden. It's a little bit of a different beast. So that was my little diatribe about that because I read into it a lot. People just don't, they don't understand the, the difference between the three or the four things. Okay, so define an urban farm for people. Well, an urban farm is a is a a few to many propositions. So you have a few people growing food for a lot of people. And it, there's usually a sales component. There could be a job training component, but it's really an economic or consumer type of endeavor. Whereas a community uh, food garden or a workplace garden or school garden, that's a uh, many too many propositions. So that's a lot of people growing food for their own use or to share with their neighbors, but there's no real economic piece to it. Okay. I know a lot of people kind of wonder about the differences when you hear there's an awful lot of talk in some areas, particularly, for example, like in Detroit, about urban farms and taking that farmland and turn it into agricultural endeavors within the city. And I think people don't necessarily think about that. Now, with community gardens, what do people do with their surplus? Are they allowed to sell it, or does that depend on their individual garden, or do you have a swap table, or how did you? How do you? How do people deal with that? Well, our gardens are fairly small because uh, the individual gardens are four by eight. Because we are starting with new gardeners, we didn't want them to be intimidated by too much. You can actually get quite a bit of food out of a four by eight plot. I've never heard of anybody in our garden selling their food. I have heard of them sharing their food with others, with their neighbors or with other gardeners, et cetera. We do, in all of our gardens, have a program we call Grow to Give. So at least 5% of each garden is set aside 
the plots where volunteers manage them and grow food to donate to local food and nutrition partners. So sometimes the general gardeners will contribute to that, and then we give it to the uh, food pantry or food program of the community's choice. And last year we grew over a ton of food, so that was that was pretty fun. That must make the gardeners themselves feel really good, too, that they can give back, even if maybe they don't have all that much to begin with, but they can share the wealth, so to speak. Yeah, it's a really popular program, and we, we love doing it because it helps people understand. You know, it's a community garden, right? It helps you understand the others in the community that, you know, maybe can benefit from this effort on one small piece of property. Um, when you talk about people being the most important part, I was very much struck by your in your book about um, dealing with the between the difference between leadership and organizing. Tell us about that. Well, I think we live in a pretty hierarchical society where you know if you have a job, you have a boss. The boss tells you what to do. And you do it. You know, that's really leadership. Sometimes we don't like being told what to do and doing it, but it's our job. You know, you also find that in, you know, church organizations or other groups where it's a hierarchical thing and someone's the boss and everybody else does what that person says. Organizing is kind of exactly the opposite. It's one person or several people going in and being um, sort of a catalyst for what the organization, what the people want, the community wants. And so it's a very different approach to what we're used to in our, you know, hierarchical world. And, you know, I think it's really the trick. Leadership is important. You know, there's an old saying, where there is no vision, the people perish. I think that that's absolutely true. But going in and working with the group to determine what they want, how they can contribute, et cetera, is really what has to happen to make a community garden successful because then everybody's invested their garden, they were part of the process, they came up with the ideas, and it's a real it's a real foundation for longevity in a program. Do you have to spend a lot of time with conflict resolution or do you take care of that under your initial organizing? Well, you know, we... Wherever there's people, there's conflict. You know, that's the way it works. And I like to think that, um, you know, the more organized you are and the more the mystery is removed, you know, everybody knows what the game plan is and how they can contribute, so it diminishes conflict. But you're always going to you're always gonna run into that. And I think, you know, one thing that's really important is to, and this is the organizing piece, too. You have to remember that it's everybody's garden and everybody has an opinion and everybody want it to succeed, and how they express that may not be the way you express it, but it's still valuable, it's still important to hear what everybody has to say. So often conflict is the best thing that can happen, because you're hearing people's passion, right? They're they're excited about something, or they're concerned about something, and that might came out, come out as what we see as conflict, but in reality, it's just, uh, you know, individual's way of communicating that might be different than your own. I like a phrase that you used, um, assume positive intentions. Because I think a lot of times when people are excited and passionate, as you mentioned, um, somebody might take it the wrong way as, you know, well, you're trying to tell me what to do, and that's not what I think I ought to do. 
And But if you're assuming that everybody is in this because they want to have a group, have a good organization, have a good garden, it takes a whole lot of mystery out of things. I wish I had learned that 40 years ago. That just because yeah, yeah, somebody's I'm... approach is different doesn't mean that it's wrong or that they're out to get somebody else. Yeah, yeah. I was at a conference, and uh, somebody brought that phrase up, and it was like the skies cracked open, and I was like, whoa, you know what I mean? Just, it's just so true. If you just assume that we're all, we all have everybody's best interest at heart, it's not always true, but if you go into that, you find that it really makes your life a lot easier. Well, and I don't think people, you know, start out trying to be mean. There are a couple of people that are, I think, in any group that want to be controlling. Um, but I don't think that necessarily that means that they're out to hurt somebody doing it. But sometimes when people are getting angry and shouting at each other from across the room, you can lose that good intention unless you're reminded of it. And I think that that phrase, assume positive intentions, is just... It, it was a real eye-opener for me, too. So now tell me how, how people might go about organizing or how, how you develop it in your book. You talk about asset-based community development. What does that mean? Well, that's really that's really the concept of having the glass half full versus the glass half empty. I think a lot of times it's easy to say, oh, we can't do this because we don't have this, we can't do that, we don't have this, we don't have that. But asset-based community development is really, as I was saying earlier, is getting in with a group of people and realizing what they do have. You know, what assets can they contribute to the garden? Do they have some old tools in their garage? Do they have water? Are they next door to the garden? Can they contribute water? Do they have some free time every Wednesday where maybe they can be there for tours? It's really just, you know, getting people excited about what they have, what they can contribute, and working that into a program that everybody that also gives the people a little bit more sense of ownership doesn't it when they can when they know that they can contribute something positive to it absolutely and that's what you want you want it to be a community garden now you talk one of the things that you have in your book that i think is a pretty cool thing is is a mission questionnaire you want to run down some steps for our listeners so they know what might be on that or what's involved? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the nut of that is that, again, that quote I go back to, where there is no vision, the people perish. You know, a lot of people are excited about their, about a community garden, and there's a lot of reasons to do a community garden. You know, it could be because you want to get food to your, your community, or you want to have it as a social justice program, or you want to have it as a place for maybe veterans, or you know, homeless individuals or just the community in general. And so a lot of people have a lot of good ideas, but if you don't have the same idea, it might not um, it might not provide a uh, real basis for everybody understanding what they're up to. So the point of that, that mission exercise is really to think through, what do you want the garden to be? What is it going to – how are you going to um, – how are you going to be able to introduce people to it, help them know what's going on? You know, is it, in our in our instance, our gardens are teaching gardens. You know, they're organic teaching gardens. So if someone came in and wanted to be part of the community and wanted to start a farmer's market, that's probably not, you know, probably not the best fit for our garden. But there could be other gardens out there that that would be an excellent fit for. 
But if you don't know, then you don't you don't have a common interest. You don't have a common understanding that everybody can get behind and talk about. And why that's important? It's important for the community, you know, to understand. Hey, this is what we're doing. But it's also important when you go about looking for funding, so you can know that you know your mission lines up with X Y Z organization or foundation. So you can go to them and say, hey. Our garden has existed for this number of years, and our mission has been this. We see that you have a similar mission. Can we work together potentially for funding or partnership or volunteers or what have you? That's a great point. We need to take a quick break here, but I want to remind everybody that you're listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show, and we'll be back talking with gardening right after this. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. Today we're talking about community food gardens with Lamanda Joy, who's written a book, How to Start a Community Food Garden, and it's called The Essential Handbook. And I have to tell you that, Lamanda, you cover everything in here. I was just so thrilled to see this book. Um, we were talking right before the break about a mission statement and how people might can use that mission statement to decide what is going to be allowed and not permitted in the garden and how you might plug into other gardens. Um, what else do people need to know when they are, are working on that? Uh, there's some fundamental things that I think uh, during the group process of developing the garden need to be answered. One is if you're partnering with any organization, say you're getting funding from a health center or the local the police department or what have you, <clears throat> that needs to be part of your mission statement and your mission because their objectives will influence the garden, right? So by stating who you're in partnership with, that's one of the elements that you can uh, you can include in your mission statement. Uh, you need to think about the impacts that apply to the garden. You know, who are they going to, who are they going to impact? Is it going to be, you know, just the neighbors? Is it going to be a, a local community food center? Is it going to be what, what have you? So understanding who the garden is going to touch is really important. Uh, 
you know, the purpose of growing food? Is it for the individuals? Is it to teach, like in our community gardens, uh, our Peterson Garden Project? Or is it to grow food for others? You know, this will really, this is a really important question because it might impact how you decide to set the garden up, which we can get to it a little bit later. And then who the gardeners are. Is it the community? Is it a, a closed group, like a workplace situation or a, a hospital? Who are the gardeners and, and how will they participate in the garden? And um, is your goal to teach? You know, is it a teaching garden or is it the goal to help the neighborhood? And if you're inspired by something, you know, if, if there's an individual or, uh, in our case, the Victory Garden Movement, all of those questions, they seem they might seem like silly questions, but if you have a room full of people and you're just at the beginning, if you ask those questions, they're all going to have different answers. So the point of uh, the mission statement and the whole process of getting to a mission statement is to make sure that everybody's on the same page because those uh, factors, as I had mentioned, can really influence how you build the garden, how you engage people in the garden, what the objective is of the garden, and it's just good to have that settled or talked about at the beginning. doesn't mean it won't change. You know, you could have, uh, you know, a situation that happens where, you know, maybe you have a new wave of participants that are really interested in, you know, engaging children in the garden or whatever it might be. That's okay. But as long as you have an understanding of this is where we've come from, this is where our garden started, this is why it started, here's where we are today, then you can say, well, you know, this is the part of your idea that works, this is the part that doesn't work today, but, you know, as a consensus process, as a group process, we can perhaps incorporate that into the mission statement, or maybe it's been a few years, three to five years, we have a new you know, a new set of leadership or a new set of energy in the group. Maybe we need to rethink things. But at least you have a basis from which to start. So everybody's working from the the same uh, starting place. Or singing from the same hymn book, as my mother likes to say. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of my phrases, too. Um, And I really like that you can use the mission statement as a conflict resolution tool, too as well as a, a tool to maybe grow in different directions if necessary. Lamanda, one of the things that you talk about in your book is uh, about holding a meeting. And there are some things in there that I would never have thought about, but you included them. And I, I wonder if there's a backstory behind some of them. Like if you have a winter meeting, make sure there's a place to hang their coats. Well, that's because I live in Chicago and the winters are so horrible. <laughs> you know, I've been... I joke that, you know, you go, you go you go to a pub or a bar, right? People go when the winter's horrible, there's a mountain of coats, and people stay till the bar closes because you won't be able to find your coat. It's like a collective effort. So that is pretty much a, a, regional, a regional thing for sure. I guess here in, in a lot of areas, the parking is going to be most important or, or a closeness to a, a, a subway or a train stop or something like that. But I... It, you know, I, I've been out of Chicago area for so long. We left that area in 1960 that I had forgotten about how how bad that can get in the wintertime. I think I saw this morning that it was minus 4 there, and I'm perfectly happy that it's only 12 degrees here where I am in Georgia at the moment, even though that's cold enough. Um, and in your meeting, too, where your section about meetings, you talk about publicizing the meetings. And you brought up some things that I wouldn't have thought of either about the flyers and where to put them. Um, tell people a little bit about that. Well, you know, 
the thing about a community garden is that you want as many of the community members as possible. I think it's, it's sort of a natural tendency to be like, well, I'm going to, I want to, you know, be involved in this community garden. I'm going to invite all my friends. Well, for it to be a true community garden, it needs to represent the neighborhood. You need to have everybody involved. And not everybody is on, you know, on a computer or on social media or what have you. You have different age gra- gaps. You have different you know, economic gaps, and so you have to think of different ways to reach out to everybody. So that's why I sort of make that list of places to put flyers so you can, you know, engage as many people as possible. I think people think nowadays that everybody is on the Internet, but you've got, but I've been in Chicago um, look during some of the community gardens there, and some of them are in neighborhoods that you would not expect to have a computer. Though I guess now the schools are helping kids get, more computers into the homes, or are they? I know they are in our area. You know, I can't answer that because I don't have kids and I'm not really in, engaged in that per se, but if you just think about age and economic differences, you know, there's, you know, some older people which are great members to have in the gardens because often they have gardening skills, they might have a little more time, they have been part of communities. I mean, the, the older generations are just, amazing community gardeners it's good for them they get outside you know but they may or may not they may or may not have computers they may or may not be engaged in social media the way other people are but you know they want to participate so flyers or printed material are really good for that then you have just sort of the economic differences you know a lot of people can't afford that or they you know aren't of an education level where computers are you know part of what they do so it's it's really, it's just really important to try and communicate as much as you possibly can. And if you're in a situation where there's multiple languages spoken in your neighborhood, you want everybody to be as involved as possible. And that sort of, you know, if you want to engage, um, you know, people that speak other languages, that adds a little bit of a level of complexity because you have to find a volunteer or someone committed that can, you know, translate the materials or be in the garden to help with, um, you know, language issues or situations. And that does add a layer of complexity, but it's also very important that these gardens represent the whole community, all the neighbors. Otherwise, it's not really a community garden. Yeah, it becomes kind of a, a clique rather than community, doesn't it? It can, yeah. I was really impressed in your book that you assume nothing um, and, and you cover everything. I, I can't think of a thing that I, that somebody would need to know that isn't in your book on starting a community garden. You even talk about dealing people, how to deal with people that are disruptive. That's something that I would not have expected to find in the book, though of course I've dealt with it so many times in the past in, in various capacities. Um, did you develop that, um, through your own trying to learn how to deal with it, or was this another aha moment, or or tell me about that? Well, when you're dealing with community assets, especially when you're dealing with city property, you know, city property or what have you, you might be in a situation where people want to be heard. So, for example, we did a we did a we did a meeting for a garden. In uh, last year, 2014, and you know our meetings have always been love fests. We were just, you know, it's people are excited. It's great. This meeting was a little contentious, and we were really surprised. You know, it sort of, you know, it was a surprise to us because you know we're not a political organization. 
we we garden with anybody that wants to garden. You know, it was very strange. But really what was happening is that the alderman's office was there. And the alderman is in Chicago. It's like a local form of, you know, neighborhood government. And the people that were sort of acting up were doing it because they wanted the alderman's attention. They wanted to talk about things that weren't related to the garden at all. They just wanted to do that. So it was an interesting, it was an interesting situation. And so, you know, the, the point of a meeting isn't that everybody gets along and that everybody has the same opinion. It's just, it's the point of a meeting is that, you know, you can get to consensus. So, you know, disparate ideas or personalities, those are important, welcome things. You know, you don't want to have everybody be boring and bland and all the same. You just want to make sure that you can, you know, harness everybody's ideas and get to a very respectful place. But there are going to be instances where you just might have another that is inappropriate and there for other reasons or just not, you know, not someone that you can really work with. And that's when you can, that's when it's really important to engage the group, you know, to, um, sort of vote that person off the island if necessary. Or if you have to, you know, <laughs> call 911, that's fine, or escort them out, that's fine. I would say that that happens very rarely, but the important part I would like, you know, people to understand is that, you know, it's not that everybody's people are always going to be nice to each other. That's not the case, especially as we were talking earlier when people are passionate about something. You don't want everybody to be the same. That makes life boring. You want all the differences and all the assets and and interesting personalities that a community has to offer, but you just really need to get to a place where people respect each other, you know, and respect each other's opinions and and can communicate and, and get to a, a resolution point. Uh, you know, it, it's funny. It really didn't occur to me about the contention that could happen in a, in, in a neighborhood like that because, like you, I've mostly worked with gardeners, and gardeners tend to be pretty gentle souls, Um as long as they're not arguing about chemical versus organic gardening. Um, right, so when, right. I, when, <laughs> when I saw that in the book, it, it really took me aback. But it, it is the way you put it, it is so important so that you have a plan to deal with it if necessary. And you do talk about, you know, getting, um, asking the person politely to wait and let everybody else have their say um, or, you know, if necessary, throwing the people off the island, as you said. Um, but that's something that I would never have considered doing. How did you learn all of this stuff, Amanda? Well, part of it comes from just my management background. You know, I used to be a corporate executive, so some of it's just basic, you know, people management and organization and project management. I learned a lot, of course, with Peterson Garden Project. That's been the most amazing learning experience of my life. But I'm also on the board for the American Community Gardening Association. So I go to the conferences and I talk to a lot of people across the country and I hear, like I said, people ask a lot of the same questions. I hear a lot of what's going on. And, you know, in a way, those conferences are really great because you realize everybody has the same problems. You know, they're in different locations. They may call them different things, but everybody has the same problems. And so I was able to take all of that knowledge and put it into this, put it into this, book and I'm I hope I really hope that you know for people that are starting out like you're saying I never would have thought of that I hope that they um you know that that sort of stuff doesn't scare them you know like oh I'm gonna run into crazy people you know not that but that it's you know just gives you a heads up that this stuff happens you know and it's okay and other people learn to deal with it you'll learn to deal with it too you'll learn to deal with the good stuff and the bad stuff 
and the good stuff by far outweighs the bad stuff, but I just wanted to be comprehensive and, you know, let people know that there's a lot to starting a community garden, much more than they probably think. We need to take a quick break here, but um, we'll be back talking more gardening right after this. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one, can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. Today we're talking about community food gardens and garden organizing with Lamanda Joy, author of Start a Community Food Garden, The Essential Handbook. And Lamanda, I so much wish that you had written this book 10 years ago or 20 years ago before I got involved in some garden uh, garden projects. And I'm so hoping that people will save themselves the time and the grief by taking the time to read this book. Because, you know, We've been talking now for about 45 minutes, and we haven't even gotten to um, the planning and designing of the gardens themselves. The most important part, and, you know, I think a lot of us think that um, the most important part is finding a place to garden and who's going to build the raised beds if we're going to do raised beds and who, where we're going to get the soil and where we're going to get the money. But there's so much more that needs to go into the thinking and and I think when people take that approach the you know get the stuff first that's when the gardens fall apart or are more likely to isn't it it is you know I've seen a wave of programs where people are excited 
they go in and drop a bunch of money. They have this garden, but they don't have a community around it, and it just becomes too much. It becomes too much for a few people to handle, and that's sad. I don't want that to happen. I want people to have gardens that, you know, have some longevity to them and really serve the communities that they're built to serve. And serving the community, I think, is is the main, the whole point, whether it's um, garden or whether, you know, gardening for food or whether it's, Gardening as a way to bring people together, to give them something in common. Because I know a lot of, you know, I live in suburbia. There isn't, the, we don't have many of the same problems that inner city folks have to deal with. You mentioned the getting the police departments involved um, in, in some cases. or and, and I think that that's something that if it's coming from within the community, it's likely to be more successful than if it's imposed from the top down. Exactly. Um, you know, I, there's a, it's, go it's, ahead. You know, when we talk about, like when I talk about Peterson Garden Project and I say the number of beds and the you know, number of people in the volunteer hours, that's really, it's a big number, right? Because it, And it talks about infrastructure, but what you're not seeing is the community piece, the people becoming friends, the people helping each other out, the neighborhood being safer. It's hard to quantify those things, but that's really the most important part and the biggest part, but it's the part that you can't see. So these, you know, the food part is kind of just an excuse for people to get together because everybody eats, right? It's the great equalizer. The rain falls on all of us. The sun shines on all of us. You know, we're all hot together. We're all cold together. You know, we're all sort of suffer together if there's a, you know, a bug infestation. It is, gardening is the great equalizer, and it does amazing things for communities. But it's it's so very little about the food. I was really impressed. Um, I was on a garden tour with the Garden Writers Association a few years ago, uh, probably back before the Peterson Garden was project was started. But there were quite a number of little tiny gardens in communities, and to see the different people working on them together, even though when we were there, it was, you know, it was pretty miserable weather. Chicago in in the summer is, is steamy, just like it is in a lot of the East Coast. But the people were there together. And one of the main things that caught my interest in all of that was how they were helping one another. And you could, you could, you know, when I talked to some of the community garden leaders, you can tell that these people had never met before the garden happened. And here they were, yeah. you know, interacting with one another. And it was surprising the people that were interacting with one another, that people that you wouldn't necessarily think of, like the young people and the old people, but they were unrelated young people and old people. They were just, you know, in it together. That was yeah. pretty cool. It's really magical. Mm-hmm. Now, tell us, you have something in here in your book called a reciprocity map. Tell us about them. You know, the reciprocity map really comes in handy when you're talking about partnerships. And if you have your mission, you understand what your mission is, and you understand what you can offer to others. So, you know, you're in a community, you have local businesses that might want to help, you might have, uh, you know, other organizations that might want to help, you might have churches or schools or what have you. A reciprocity map is really an exercise. I think we all kind of do it mentally anyway, at least in terms of how others can help us. But I don't think we often articulate how 
we can help others. So the reciprocity map is really an exercise to think about, okay, I'm going to partner with this organization. Say I'm going to partner with a local pizza parlor, you know? So I know if I partner with this local pizza parlor, I'm going to get pizza, and that's going to be good for my volunteers, and I'm going to get a place for people to go to the bathroom because the pizza parlor is right next door and we don't have bathrooms. Okay, that's good for me, right? But what's good for the pizza parlor? So pizza, you know, owner guy or gal, how will this help you? Well, it's going to expose them to more potential customers. It's going to be goodwill in the community, et cetera. So it's just really an exercise to make sure that everybody is getting something out of a partnership. And it's a really good exercise to do because I think you find, one, it opens a dialogue. It makes the businesses part of the community, too, because they realize how they're helping you and they're realizing how you're helping them, and it makes things really great. That's a really good point because I think um, when you, whenever you have a large gathering of people coming together in an area where perhaps the you know the business person or whatever isn't used to having that many people, you know, might they think that oh these people are going to be you know parking in their customers' parking spaces or you know and we don't think about that as people that are, you know, we're all enthusiastic about doing a garden, but we don't think about the potential problems as the other person might see them. And we can do a lot just by thinking ahead to allay those fears, can't we? Thinking ahead and really, you know, being respectful and listening. And the reciprocity map says, hey, let's talk this through together. You know, let's open the door so we can have a conversation. And then it just makes things so much easier. You know, like once you, know, once you just open that door with people, it really reduces conflict. It lets them know they can talk with you. I mean, it's just, it's a great way to, it's a great way to start off a relationship with, you know, sister organizations or businesses in your area. I think that dialogue is important even if you, you don't need anything from them. What do you think? Like you mentioned, the pizza parlor and the bathrooms, but um, just the dialogue itself, I think, can be important. Yeah, you know, people don't like to be surprised, and so I think that it's it's good to be courteous and go around and just talk with people and say, "Hey, you know, we're putting in this garden. I don't know how it'll impact you, but if there's ever any issue, I just want you to know that I'm available to talk with. Here's my contact info." You know, participate if you want to. If you don't want to, that's fine, too. But just a heads up, we're really excited about it, blah, blah, blah. You know, like if you can go out and do some of that evangelizing in the community, you know, around the garden for those businesses, then it makes them partners, too. Maybe passively, but, you know, you never know. Down the road, they might they might observe the garden and think, hey, I'd like to get involved or what have you. But it just, you know, it's good to be a good neighbor. I think that's a key point in here. Um, in your book, you talk about meetings ahead of time, and you talk about the agendas, the agenda for your meeting, and you do it, your agenda is so thorough that besides just the, you know, who, what, where, when, you allow time for, you know, people to hang out and talk afterwards. And that impressed me particularly because I found when I would chair meetings um, that sometimes the underlying, the, the, the back story that you hear after the meeting can be as important as what's going on in the meeting. People that don't want to get up and, and talk during the meeting, um, but they will often want to just chat, and it also builds friendships um, more thoroughly after a meeting. 
Yes, it's absolutely true. And, you know, there's all sorts of different communication styles. Some people may be the smartest person in the room, but they're too shy to say anything. So if you allow a little bit of extra time, then you can, you know, sort of be this open place where people can add thoughts that they couldn't think of it on time. You know, sometimes people need to mull things over before they have a response or, you know, someone might be a little bit of a wallflower. But it makes sure that everybody has a chance to be heard. You know, a meeting environment is a great way to convey information and and get people to participate, but it's not the only way. You know, it's sort of the main way, but you you can you can take into account other other factors. I'm glad you put that in there. And lest anybody think that we, this isn't covered, you, your book also covers liability insurance, um, location, importance of water, um, 501c3 status, the safety of the gardens and of the participants. Everything is in here. And you do something else in your book, too. You talk about year-round community activities and fun stuff. And one of the things that I noticed that you had a, a little um, festival with music and food. Do you do that at all your gardens? Is that something new? How did that come about? Well, it started because of the master gardeners. So we we wanted to have an opportunity, since we're a learning garden, we wanted to have an opportunity for people to ask questions, uh, you know, sort of like garden therapy. They can ask individual questions about their specific garden as opposed to going to a group class or what have you. So we came up with this thing we called Music and Master Gardeners, and we would do it uh, once a week or every other week on, on a Thursday. The Master Gardeners would come so they could get their hours, and we'd have music. People could, you know, bring food and eat in the garden, et cetera. And it really turned out to be a nice thing because we wanted to have a place where people just didn't run in and get their lettuce and leave. We wanted to have a place where people felt that they could hang out, make it an extended, you know, living room or dining room in a way. And those music and master gardener nights were really a great way to do that because, um, you know, people could, you know, get their garden therapy, the master gardeners could get their hours, and they could really enjoy a beautiful setting. Then it's another way to build community, isn't it? Absolutely. No. You know, we didn't – it worked. It wasn't all gardeners that would participate. Community members would come, and they may or may not have been gardeners. You know, they may have been spouses that didn't come to the garden much or just people that weren't even really involved much other than being there. And then you'd often find them talking with someone, getting invited to a work day, you know, increasing interest, and then in subsequent years they wanted to participate too. And even if you didn't get them as a participant in the garden, you also you were just able to get them there. And I think if somebody knows, for example, about the garden, they're going to be, and they're excited about the garden, even if they're not a gardener themselves, they're going to know who belongs in that garden, who doesn't belong there. Um, they, they take kind of a, an ownership in it. If they see somebody, you know, it happens. People would come in and steal stuff or try to vandalize or something like that, and they're an extra set of eyes looking out there. Not that we ever want to think about that. Right. We're almost to the end of the show for today, but let's tell people how we can get, how they can get your book and get more information and your website. So. Okay, well, you can get the book on Amazon or at your local bookstore. Uh, you can get it from, uh, you know, Timber directly. You can get it from Amazon, et cetera. So it's out there. It's exciting. If you get it and you like it, please leave a review. That would be fun. You can find out about Peterson Garden Project at petersongarden.org. My home blog, my personal blog is The Yarden, so that's theyarden.com. 
and I also have a site, lamandajoy.com, that talks about more about the book and the book tour that I'm going on and, you know, chances where we can all talk and get to know each other across the country. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us today, Lamanda. Um, I've enjoyed it, and I hope people also enjoy Start a Community Food Garden. That's all the time we have for today, but we'll be back talking more gardening next week on America's Homegrown Bitty Show. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.